So this surprised me. Uh, renter income has grown at a faster pace than owner income after the recession. And on the face of it, that's a little counterintuitive. That's right. But when you dig into it, maybe it makes more sense. The growth in renter income is a result of more high-income households renting. After 2010, households earning 75000 drove three-quarters of renter household growth. So that would explain it. Uh, but let's add one more fact into the mix uh, that I think may be connected. Uh, 59% of that growth in renter households between 2010 and 2017 was in the suburbs. Absolutely. But hold on. I think we're getting carried away. But there's just so much in the new Joint Center report on America's rental housing. I mean, how can we not? There is, which is why we have the author of the report here with us in studio today. So you're saying we should save the best parts for the rest of the episode and not waste it all in the intro? Exactly. But one last thing. In the last 10 years, renting... Hello and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Corey Aber. And I'm Steve Guggenwas. Today on the show, we're going to dig into some of the nuances of the rental housing market with Whitney Ergood Obricki, research associate at Harvard's Joint Center for Housing Studies and lead author of America's Rental Housing 2020. Whitney, thanks so much for joining us here today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I just want to say that the report has absolutely been a fantastic one this year, and I have truly enjoyed getting into it. I think just the, what we talked on before, what was in the intro regarding kind of the the, the, the ownership and versus renter and the high-income households coming into the market is something that's notable to me. But maybe you can start off and just give us an overall you know, assessment. Sure. One of the big things that we saw this year was this continuation of moderation of overall household growth over sort of the last three years. But at the same time, higher income households still continue to drive rental demand. And that's really keeping vacancy rates low and it's keeping rent growth continuously up and up and up. And we're really seeing that multifamily construction remains strong and increasingly targeted to the high end of the market, partially because of this growth in higher income households. And so as a result, we're seeing rents shift higher and higher. So the whole distribution of rents is shifting higher. And as a result, we're seeing this worsening of the affordability crisis. And that included rising cost burdens this year for the first time in the last couple of years, as well as increasing numbers of people experiencing homelessness. Well, so let's let's dig into that a little bit. So um, one, I just want to understand a little bit what's driving that growth in, in higher income renter households. There's a couple of possible reasons. Um, one could be that there's been just a fundamental shift in preferences. And so now people view renting as part of what they're going to do throughout the life course. And there's more sort of social acceptance of it. And in fact, Freddie Mac had a survey that showed that the majority of renters are satisfied with their current rental situation. Um, and they just view it as it's, it's OK. It fits their lifestyle. But on the other hand, there's a lot of evidence that growing affordability pressures on the homeowner side are making it so even if you have a decent income of $75,000, you're not able to break into the homeownership market. And one of the big points that we saw in favor of that hypothesis is that all net growth in homeowners this year was in households making at least $150,000 a year, and the majority of those households made $200,000 a year. So there's some evidence that $75,000 a year just isn't cutting it. And then secondly, that same Freddie Mac survey showed that most people think they're eventually going to be homeowners. Um, so it doesn't seem like there is this massive shift where people say it's out of the equation entirely. They aspire to it, but they just can't quite get there. And you know, the other part of it that, you know, that I mentioned in the intro is that like real growth of uh, renter households in the suburbs. So what's driving that? 
Is that is that yeah. really connected or is there something else going on? It's difficult to know exactly, but we certainly saw an expansion of rentals with um, the foreclosure crisis and the growth of single family rentals. And so one possibility is just that the geography of renting is wider now. And so we're seeing more pockets of rental housing in suburban neighborhoods. But it, it's a little hard to unpack why that's happening exactly. Yeah. And I think that number, just to, to reiterate, the 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 net growth all coming from households making 150000 or more is, is just absolutely stunning. It says, right. like you say, I think that you're right to kind of reference survey data to, to kind of back that up. It, I mean, it just it seems to speak to a real – people view a really high hurdle to getting into home ownership, which is uh, creating a bunch of growth. It, I noticed also like that the average age of a renter is going up, which is somewhat mm-hmm. consistent with that as well. Maybe you could speak to um, that a little bit. Yeah, we saw a huge growth in households who are headed by someone who's 55 and over. Um, And so we're seeing that share of the population increase rather rapidly. And that's another trend that's a little hard to unpack if these are people who are downsizing as they get older, um, if it's people who are just in a worse financial situation, which is something we've seen in our Housing America's Older Adults report in the past couple of years. Um, So there could be a couple of inputs into that. But either way, they're making up a huge chunk of the growth now. Right. And I think uh, a, n- a number that I noticed, uh, as Corey said, we we're going to have so many numbers uh, in this episode, was the was the median age increase from 40 to 42 um, in terms of renter household uh, median age. And uh, and certainly uh, when when we look at, you know, perceived demand, we're looking at, you know, the millennials getting a little bit older and the peak being in that, you know, late 20s, uh, you know, age cohort. But certainly. Uh, this kind of highlights that there's renters kind of going, you know, way beyond that. Absolutely. So may- maybe creeping not just in uh, in the millennial generation, but some in Generation X as well. You're seeing increase in renters in that generation? That's right. Yeah, we're seeing increases really up the age scale. And um, in terms of millennials, part of what we saw when we dug into some of the higher income renter growth that we're seeing is that a lot of those are younger households. A lot of them have college educations are married, have children. Um, so it seems that the uh, you know transitions in life aren't necessarily being accompanied by a transition in tenure. Yeah, I thought an, a, another remarkable number was uh, the reference to households that were married with children and that overall that had been declining in the population. Or, but but actually the number of renter households is increasing. It's so it's the, the share of renters who have children is now higher than the share of owners who have children. It's been decreasing for both, but it's decreasing more rapidly for owners. Okay. Um, so that's how we end up seeing the share for renters slightly higher now, even though the number of homeowners with children is still much higher given how large that population is. And do you have a sense from the data of um, you know what type of rental housing that uh, – that cohort is living in? Is it more focused on single-family rental because, you know, they want space for the kids and the dogs and all of that? That's a good question. I don't think we looked into it for this report. Um, I recently had, uh, I think it was maybe a year and a half ago, did a a paper looking at family-sized housing supply gaps, basically, finding that single-family rentals are a huge source of affordable family-sized supply, of course. But honestly, what we need the most of are two-bedroom units. We have a lot of smaller families, even though we do have more renters with children. It's it's fewer children, right? Uh, so for that, you know, what do you see of the the new stock coming online? It, you know, is it keeping up or aligning with that demand, or are we seeing something different? 
So a lot of the new stock that we're seeing is definitely at the higher end. So we're seeing it cater to that higher income group. Um, we are seeing more like one bedroom and studio apartments. But so the sense is, first of all, that a lot of these new apartments are in much larger buildings, the 50 plus multifamily buildings. Um, so in that sense, it's sort of catering in some ways to this population who want an urban, large multifamily experience. That's where we're seeing a lot of the new construction going. So what, what kind of buildings are you seeing then? So new properties, one bedroom units, higher income, what do the buildings look like? That's a good question. Um, we don't know much about the physical structure of the building. We know that um, the majority of these are now in these very large multifamily buildings with at least 50 units. Um, we know that the majority of permitting is now going into the urban core of large cities. And that's where we've seen the largest rebound in multifamily construction um, since the crash. So that's that's basically what we know about the multifamily stock right now. Right. And I think that um, we often end up talking, too, about how the new stock that the, we talk about supply being at very high levels, you know, 30 year highs. But that certainly catering to the top of the market and that we hear so much more. I think your report is um, um, speaks so well to the affordability issues as well, which is more at the lower end of the market. Um, so uh, how how what is driving you know, the increasing you know, problem at the lower end of the market? So to be clear, for those at the very lowest end of the market making less than $15,000 a year, their burdens have actually come down slightly in recent years, both in number and share. Um, what we're seeing, though, is that it's it's just as bad as ever, basically. These, these improvements are really modest. So we still have about three quarters of the lowest income um, renters spending more than half of their incomes on rent each month. Right. So and that's... That's still just as bad as it's basically ever been. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. certainly. That, that, yeah. And then I think that uh, in the in the report you capture that that it's actually creeping up into the mid market a little bit more than it has been in the past. That is correct. So what we're seeing is for households making between thirty and seventy five thousand dollars a year, which we refer to as middle income, their burdens are rising the most rapidly. For those who are making between thirty and forty-five thousand dollars a year, they've seen their cost burden rate jump five point four percentage points since twenty eleven, and that's a period when national burden rates have generally been coming down. And then for the next highest income group, making between forty-five and seventy-five thousand dollars, their burden rate has increased by four point three percentage points. So these groups that you would say are making a decent income um, for this thirty to forty-five thousand group, more than half are now cost burdened. Um, and then for this forty-five to seventy-five thousand dollar income group, more than a quarter are now burdened. So we're seeing that rise really rapidly among that group. So I know there's more we should talk about uh, on the the cost burden side, but I do want to understand a little bit that uh, range for middle income. How'd you come up with that? Uh, so middle income is generally it, it straddles the median renter income, which is about forty thousand dollars for the median renter household. Um, we tend to break things into about six income categories for most of the analysis we do, and find that it sort of fits a national level distribution. It of course isn't as applicable in places like California that have a higher income distribution, um, and maybe it's not as applicable in um, lower income states or in rural areas where the the income distribution is shifted um, on the other end. But we find nationally that that generally works pretty well as a middle income group. 
And some of the thinking on the, the the different income bands is certainly there's the burden to those households, and then there's how the income trends have been over time. And I love how you get the update each each year, like you say, and there, there's been slight improvements in the overall burden. Yeah, we're seeing this just growing income inequality over time. And I think that's certainly part of why we're seeing burdens worsen, even at a time when the overall economy is relatively strong, that the benefits aren't being equally distributed across the population. So you mentioned, though, a decrease in burden for a couple of years, and now we're starting to see it rise again. Uh, what's behind that? That is entirely due to households making over $30,000 a year. So the majority of those are in that middle income band between thirty dollars and $75,000. We also saw a slight rise in the number of households making over $75,000 that contributed to that overall growth in cost burdens, though. Um, so really, we're seeing it's these middle-income renters who are just increasingly crunched. Part of that's related to the growth of high-income renters who are putting more pressure on the market as well. So, so certainly, a lot of factors have contributed to you know the the affordability issues that we have on the ground right now. As you look forward, um, how do you see supply and demand shaking out, and how do you see you know things looking a little bit better in the future, or what does the rental market of the future look like? In terms of overall demand, we're thinking that in 2019, we had roughly a 350,000 gain in renter households. And assuming that the homeownership rate remains stable as it has roughly over the last two years, a 300,000 or so increase in renter households each year is not unreasonable. Basically, uh, unless we really throw resources at this problem, we're not going to see a lot of improvement. Even in the years where we saw cost burden come down, it was really, really modest. And so we're still, when we look at the peak of, of cost burdens, we're only about a half million below that, even after three years of declines. So we really need more um, resources, more effort going toward this affordability problem if we want to see any major changes. And without those, we don't really see that budging a whole lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I noticed that even the, the issues are still the case, and I think the the rental stock in 2017, I think there was a slight decline in the total rental stock, about that same magnitude as you're talking about expectations for growth. Is that right? Yeah. we um, So over, I, I guess in, term, in terms of the demand side, we saw the, uh, the number of households come down from 2016 to 2018. The gain in 2019 completely reversed that, though, and put us back where we were. Um, so we, we say we're kind of at a plateau right now. We've had about four years. Um, the, the number of renter households has been pretty stable around that, a little bit of movement here or there, but it seems like things are, are pretty well stabilized at the moment. So with the changes in the rental stock, I suppose there's obviously increases in, in, in units overall and there's decreases. Can you walk us through how stock changes over time? Sure. So there's a couple of ways that we would lose rental stock. One is through demolitions, which is a pretty small chunk of things. Um, one is when they convert back to home ownership or units are consolidated, essentially. Um, and and then we've seen after this foreclosure crisis, we had this huge expansion of single family rentals. And in the last couple of years, we've actually seen the number of number of single family rentals coming back down. And when we look at the age of these rentals, it seems like this is mostly related to conversion of these units back into the home ownership market. When we think about expanding stock then, some of that will come through, again, tenure conversions. It could be home ownership units that come back into the rental stock. Um, there's also just building um, the foreclosure crisis was just this it, it had this huge magnitude effect of just increasing single family rental supply across a larger geography. You know, one of the things that 
you know, one might tend to think of with with multifamily and with rental is that it does give uh, residents some flexibility over where they live. And, and if they want to find a new job in another city, it's, it's a lot easier to move from, from uh, one rental unit to another than it is to sell your house and go through that whole process. Uh, but I was struck by some of the mobility information that you had in the report. Uh, and it looked like mobility is maybe not quite as easy as I might think. So what, what's going on there? So mobility may be just as easy, but people are not moving. Um, that could be part of it, and and that could be attached to the fact that people are renting longer, and so they're sort of more stable in their renting situation. Um, we've seen mobility rates come down pretty precipitously over time, though, um, and I think the National Apartment Association reported some of the lowest turnover rates we've ever seen. Um, there could be several reasons for this. It's really hard to unpack exactly why, which I feel like I say a lot about a lot of these trends. <laughs> we see the trend, but we're not exactly sure what's behind it. Um, you know, one is that in some markets, the vacancy rate is really low. And if the market is really tight, it's really hard to find another apartment to move to. So that could certainly be playing into it as well. Um, the other is that moving is just really expensive. Um, so it could be that if, especially as we have a, you know, a, a big chunk of renters are lower income, and so that's that takes a lot of money just to move. Um, and if you're com if you're looking for um, an apartment that you can afford, if you have one, you're probably more likely to stay in it. It just it it introduces a lot of, of variables, right? If you move, and so that could be playing into to mobility questions. Um, but yeah, we're not we're not exactly sure what's entirely behind that. I think that tight market certainly could be part of the story. Another topic that I that I found interesting in the report is um, is you do take a look at how difficult it is to develop um, and seeing you know land prices go up, construction costs go up. Um, can you walk us through a little bit of what you saw there? Sure, I think cost is definitely a big piece of why we're seeing construction at the high end. Um, the inputs of of construction have all gone up in recent years. Um, we we look at this this one construction cost index and found a 39% rise in construction costs from 2012 to 2019, which is certainly feeding into the difficulty that developers have of of especially creating units that are affordable at lower price points. Um, the other thing that we're seeing is that the labor market is really tight for construction. And in fact, we saw some of the highest numbers of job openings in construction-related fields um, that we've ever seen. And so uh, with that combined, the, the cost of labor is also going up. Um, it's also harder to find contractors and subcontractors who can do things. And so the time is longer. Um, and as a result, we have one of the fullest pipelines that we've ever had for multifamily construction with over 600,000 units that are currently under construction. So these are all feeding into this difficulty of developing and developing affordably. And then you throw in, um, you know, different regulations that cities have, um, different kinds of fees that cities impose, and that can be difficult as well for developers to, um, you know, to put units on the ground. If they have to go through a lengthy permit process, that increases time, increases cost as well. And on top of that cost, land costs are doubled between 2012 and 2018. And as you said, I know that we say the same thing as you, that the, the supply that's in the pipeline just continues to grow, and we continue to think that next year is going to be you know, a year with that um, uh, is increasing supply because everything's getting um, caught up in that in that pipeline, which which then is you know leading to tight like, tight markets for apartments and and tight vacancy rates and and rents growing. 
So um, we certainly talked about some of the challenges in, in building new. Um, we talked about deterioration a little bit of, of the existing stock. Uh, but are there other things that you know we need to worry about uh, in terms of you know, just maintaining the existing stock or loss of stock? Maintenance is certainly a big one. We found that a lot of what's going into buildings are improvements, which can be good if you are trying to, you know, do an improvement, raise rents potentially. Um, but we're not seeing a lot of basic maintenance and repair. And our stock is getting older. I think the median age is 43 years now. And that's older than it's been in the past. Um, so there are concerns about maintaining the existing stock, especially the stock that's in smaller two to four multifamily buildings, which we are losing that stock and we're not really building it. Um, and that tends to be a more affordable stock as well with lower median rents on average. Um, so that's that's an important piece to keep in mind. The other big uh, stock question that we need to think about going forward, too, is accessibility. We've had this huge growth in older adult renters, and we really don't have a suitably accessible stock for them to be able to age in place. And are you starting to see any any developments in that space? Nothing that is like... Uh, you know, really big scale, groundbreaking, it seems. Yeah, not um, discernible in the data yet. Right, right. I guess the other stock piece, too, is is this question of resiliency. And in the report, we find that there are roughly 10.5 million renter households who live in areas that are prone to repeat losses, prone to natural disasters. And uh, there's a real question about how we can build resiliency into the stock while also maintaining the affordability that does exist. No, and this is this is an area of particular interest, certainly going forward. And so, curious a little bit, are you starting to see some ideas, uh, you know, uh, come up that that might be scalable? There, are, so there are different types of reforms that a few cities have done. Things like requiring certain types of roofs or materials, or um, having structures that are like more fortified or don't have um, some of the mechanical stuff on the ground floor, so you could actually have water basically going through the ground floor. Those are all things that have potential. But again, anytime you impose something like that, that's a question of are you um, are you challenging the affordability of that? that structure and that development then. Certainly. Some of those things don't sound easy to do on existing right. properties either. Right. Yeah. And and uh, I think just uh, considering affordability for each household is difficult as well. And I think that you, you uh, capture the basic affordability and then you also look at things like utility costs and commuting costs and uh, what were the trends in, the, in those areas. We basically find that when we look at energy costs, when we look at commuting costs, there's not a whole lot of range across household incomes. But when you consider the share of that household income that's being spent on those things, it is very different. And when we look at like the lowest income households and we stack up um, housing, transportation and energy costs using the American Housing Survey, we find that that's basically 60 percent of their income right there. And then what's left over is a very small amount. We do a basic just residual income analysis just using the American Community Survey and say, what's your household income? How much do you have left over? And for households who make less than $15,000 on median, they have $410 left over each month for everything else. So the affordability pressures are real. Um, even for households who are in some of these middle income bands that we talk about, their residual income has decreased by 9% since 2001. So that has a serious impact on what they're able to do as a household. It has an impact on their spending power and their you know, role in the larger economy then as well. Right. I think the residual income is, is really interesting as, a, as an idea of getting um, 
affordability measures because so many um, researchers will look at the 30% of income, which has been around forever as the baseline for setting those affordability. But when you quote these changing numbers in how much is spent, how much residual income is left over, shows that they're obviously spending not 30%. Right. We're just saying if you take your income, you subtract housing, you have this much left. And how much is that? And then you have to – so what what family can survive on $400 a month paying adequately for health care, for food, um, for their transportation needs? Um, it's, it's, un, it's unreasonable, right, to have a good cost of living that you can fit into $410 a month. Um, we also look at – we we do sort of a proxy to try to look at trade-offs that households might be making. So if you're that cost burdened, you have less to spend on everything else. We find that those households that are cost burdened and are roughly in this low-income proxy group are spending less on food and spending less on health care, especially families with children and, and older adults is, is what we're highlighting in the report as well. This is very detrimental to their health. That is certainly the case. I mean, we we in some of our duty to serve work, we we try to capture um, that that same kind of effect is that the housing together with other key expenses it it it, it can pull, it can hurt um, uh, many different kinds of outcomes, whether it's health and education and all of those kind of things. So I think we've covered a lot of what's in the report. I'd like to go into a little bit of uh, what came before the report and what came after the report. So how do you go what? You know, what is the process of just developing this report? There is a lot of us just poking around in different data sources, trying to figure out what's new this year. I think that's the question we always get. What's new? What's different? And we do try to provide some statistics that are always kind of like, yes, the lowest income are always cost burden. We should always think about this. But is this middle income growth up, you know, cost burdens up the scale, something that we need to be paying attention to because it's new or it's different? Um, And so we go through a long process of trying to figure out what do we need to report? And then what should do, what sort of trends do we need to be looking at that are new this year or that we need to be aware of? And so we go through a long process of just looking at the data. Um, we certainly look at the research that other people are doing. We look at what Freddie Mac's doing. We look at the Urban Institute. We look at all kinds of different research centers. Um, and then we assemble an advisory group. And we were lucky to have Steve on it this year. So that was great. <laughs> that was a pleasure to be there. Yeah. So we we assemble a group of experts um, across the field, basically. And, and we ask them, you know, this is what we're thinking. What are you guys seeing? What are you thinking? Um, is there anything we've totally missed. And we always get great feedback on that because we're pulling from people across different sectors and people who are in business and advocacy and um, all sorts of of different perspectives. And so that helps us to round out our report and make sure we aren't totally missing something that's huge. And as you go through that report, uh, is there any data that you wish you had that you just can't get at? Always. (laughs) There's always data. We always have a data wish list that we don't quite have. Um, there's a couple of things this year, like we'd really like to understand more what's going on with investors and their behaviors, especially around improvements and what they do in terms of raising rents when they acquire properties. How they target different properties to acquire um, is another question that we have that we couldn't quite get at from from the data that we have. Um, we always have questions about the low rent stock and what's happening to it and sort of these naturally occurring affordable housing units, if, if you subscribe to calling them naturally occurring. Um, but we always want to know. So we're losing 
large numbers of these units. I think we reported a loss of 3 million units in the report this year um, over, over the last several years. And one of the questions we always have is what's happening to these units? Are they being upgraded and then the rents are rising? Are they being demolished? Are they being converted? Um, we just really don't know what's going on with that stock exactly, and we would love more data about that. There are also a million other things we <laughs> wish we could answer. <laughs> and then as you talk to people uh, after it comes out, I know, I know there would be the typical um, local market, people following local markets. Um, there would be policy, uh, people who follow housing and policy. Um, is, do you get uh, investors or what, what kind of a mix of, of people follow up with you? We generally get a lot of people from local markets who are saying, okay, you've reported all of these national trends. What's going on in my area? Does the same apply? Um, here's what I'm seeing on the ground. Um, what does your data show for, for Austin or for Dallas or, um, you know, for Southern California? Um, so we get a lot of people who have these perceptions that they are living in tight markets and that they're reporting on sort of tight markets or major affordability problems, and they just want to know how the findings of the report apply to their area. Are there any um, you know, newspapers or, or areas that you hear from that maybe you would not have expected to have been uh, following up with you? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, we get a lot of the people you would expect. I'm always amazed at how many like smaller outlets we get who want to cover it, um, who want to think about what does affordability look like in my area. We get a lot of a lot of questions about affordability in different geographies that we're usually fielding. Um, I guess I think one of the things that came out of this report and that I'm always mildly surprised about, I mean, not entirely because I work with the data every day, but it's incredible just how pervasive this is now, how many people this touches and how many communities. And so we get all kinds of people who are saying, like, I live in this community where you don't think affordability should be a problem, but it is. And so what are the numbers behind it? Um, and that's been it's been really interesting to see as we um, as we release data and as we look at the data ourselves. Oh, that, that's great to hear that there's so much. I don't know if it's great to hear or if it's troubling to hear but that there's so much that there's so much attention. I, I was very excited and sent it to my family that um, some coverage of our release event appeared in one of the Indianapolis newspapers. And as a Hoosier myself, I was very excited about that. <laughs> that's great. And, and maybe that's a good. Uh, so so people probably can see the release event online. Is, is they that can. correct? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. The full release is still up on our website, which is jchs.harvard.edu. Um, we have a whole rental report tab there. And it has the release event, which was just a fantastic event. Um, even I, I know I was part of it, but it was it was a fabulous event. It was very informative, um, very interesting. We also post interactive maps and exhibits, which are a total time suck if you like looking at data. Um, but we also try to break things down to the metro and into the state where we can so you can see how this plays out in your own area. And on top of that, we also um, provide a bunch of data tables at the metro and state level that are things that we ran at some point, want to share, um, and, and speak to some of the themes and larger trends that we're seeing. Well, I think certainly, I mean, all those are just fantastic resources, and it goes on top of the authoritative report, I think, on the, on the rental housing market. So, uh, Whitney, thanks so much for being here today. Absolutely. Thank you to my two podcast idols. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. 
If you'd like to learn more, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.